Hello, my name is Nancy Porter, and I am happy to share on Airs LA articles from Time Magazine. These will again be three articles from the May 22nd to May 29th issue because I don't have a newer issue. It has not been delivered yet. I must remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired and materials or items read are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right. The first article is titled Facing Ghosts by Charlie Campbell in Tokyo. Prime Minister Fumio Ishida is giving Japan a more assertive role on the global stage. The official residence of Japan's Prime Minister is a spooky place. Inspired by American architect Frank Lloyd Wright, the stone and brick mansion in central Tokyo had been around for only three years when young naval officers charged in and assassinated Prime Minister Tsuyoshi Itnuki in 1932. Four years later, Prime Minister Keisuko Okada was forced to hide in a closet during another attempted coup d'etat, which killed five and left bullet holes that still pepper the building's art deco facade. The bad energy became trans-Pacific when in 1992, U.S. President George H.W. Bush became ill during a banquet there, vomiting onto the lap of Prime Minister Kichi Miyazawa before passing out. Despite a reported exorcism by Shinto priests, an association with malevolent spirits was sealed, and the residents went unoccupied for nine years until Prime Minister Fumio Kishida moved in soon after taking power in October 2021. I have been warned by my predecessors that you will encounter ghosts in this building, Kishida 65 tells Time magazine, in an exclusive interview inside the red-carpeted residence, gazing around at the expressionist wall motifs, which include at least one rather menacing concrete gargoyle. Of course, it is an old building, so I hear sounds from time to time, but fortunately, I have yet to encounter a ghost. Kishida is preoccupied by more earthly issues. In Japan, he has launched a new model of capitalism to grow the middle class through redistributive policies. Overseas, he has set about revolutionizing the East Asian nation's foreign relations, soothing historical grievances with South Korea, strengthening security alliances with the United States and others, and boosting defense spending by over 50%. Buoyed by a White House eager for influential partners to check China's growing clout, Kishida has set about turning the world's number three economy back into a global power with a military presence to match. But that's not to say Kishida is untroubled by ghosts. His family hails from Japan's southern city of Hiroshima, which he still represents as a lawmaker. And he lost several relatives to the atomic bomb dropped by the U.S. in 1945. His earliest memories include sitting on his grandmother's knee in the beleaguered city and hearing horrific tales of local suffering. The unspeakable devastation experienced by Hiroshima and its people was inscribed vividly in my memory, he says. This childhood experience has been a major driver of my pursuit.
of a world without nuclear weapons. It's to Hiroshima that Kishida welcomes leaders of the G7 from May 19th to 21, when he'll hope to leverage the city's tragic history to convince the world's most powerful democracies that only collective resolve can face down the authoritarian threat of an increasingly belligerent Russia, China, and North Korea. Tokyo may be 5,000 miles from Kiev, but the war in Ukraine has alerted Japan to a more perilous world, not least since Japan remains entangled in land and sea territorial disputes with Russia and regularly sees North Korean ballistic missiles flying overhead. Even more worrisome for Japan has been China's aggression against Taiwan, the self-ruling island that authoritarian President Xi Jinping has repeatedly vowed to bring to heel. When Beijing launched military drills last summer to protect U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taipei, five missiles fell into the waters of Japan's exclusive economic zone, through which Chinese naval vessels and aircraft regularly intrude. Against this backdrop, Kishida in December unveiled Japan's biggest military buildup since World War II, mirroring upticks in defense spending across Europe, including Germany, which, like Japan, was humbled by that war. The commitment would raise defense spending to 2% of GDP by 2027, giving Japan the world's third largest defense budget. And while previous Japanese leaders dithered over imposing international sanctions, Kishida has joined U.S.-led measures with alacrity. It's a transformation that had long been touted by Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who belonged to the same right-leaning Liberal Democratic Party and was assassinated during a campaign stop in July. But while Abe's hawkish reputation was divisive, Kishida's dovish persona has enabled him to enact security reform without significant pushback. Still, Japan's martial resurgence isn't without controversy. The nation has a pacifist constitution, and critics say its military buildup pours fuel on an already combustive regional security picture. And given that China is Japan's top trading partner, it's unclear how Kishida can find an ambitious domestic agenda while turning the screws on America's superpower rival, which has proved all too willing to mete out economic retribution. More fundamentally, some believe that Japan's rearmament shapes with Kishida's long-standing pledges to work toward a nuclear-free world. The prime minister, for his part, says his only goal is to prevent tragedies like Hiroshima unfolding once again. Today's Ukraine could be tomorrow's East Asia. Kishida's tenure has already encountered drama that belies his reputation as a bland functionary. On April 15th, Kishida narrowly avoided joining the ghosts stalking the prime minister's residence when a homemade pipe bomb was hurled at him during a campaign speech, injuring a policeman. I am living in the world of politics, he shrugs when asks about the incident. All sorts of events and developments could happen. When he took office 18 months ago, he was thought of as a steady but uninspiring politician 
unscarred by scandal, but lacking major accomplishments. His father and grandfather were both lawmakers, and he spent part of his childhood in the United States attending a public school in Queens. Classes were filled with children of myriad cultural and linguistic backgrounds, and Kashida says he found communication very challenging. But because of this, I was reminded of the importance of listening carefully to the views of others, he says. As a child, I was inspired by what makes America the United States, which is respect for freedom and an abundance of energy. Kishida was an average student, failing his law school entrance exam three times. After cutting his teeth in Banky, Kishida entered politics in 1993. He rose to various cabinet posts and was appointed Minister for Foreign Affairs in 2012, serving in the position for five years, a Japanese record. He forged a reputation as a consensus builder, coordinating policy in back rooms by deliberating with various factions. Aides say Kishida takes advice, but once his mind is made up, he doesn't waver. As Prime Minister, he's proved himself a prodigious worker. Kishida has made a dizzying 16 overseas trips since taking office. The day after he sat down with time inside his official residence's vaulted Great Hall, he departed for a four-nation tour of Africa. Aides say he's barely managed to take any time for himself. After the parliamentary session is over, if some time remains, I hope I'll be able to play some golf, he says with a grin. But it has not all been smooth on the domestic front. Kishida's approval ratings plummeted following a backlash to his decision to hold a state funeral for Abe, over both the expense and Abe's polarizing character. Late last year, Kishiba fired four cabinet ministers in two months over a variety of scandals. In February, he dismissed the close aid for saying quite a few people would abandon this country if same-sex marriage were legalized, despite a majority of the population supporting it. In response, Kishida tells Time magazine that he is committed to realizing a society where diversity is respected. Kishida's approval rating has since picked up, and his LDP won key seats in local elections in April. He may not be an inspiring leader, says Jeff Kingston, director of Asian Studies at Tokyo's Temple University, but he has proven to be fairly effective in terms of promoting his agenda. It's an ambitious one. Japan has the world's second most educated population and boasts its longest life expectancy, lowest murder rate, little unemployment, and unusually smooth political transitions. But it also has one of the world's lowest birth rates, stagnated growth, and a severely aging population. In the late 1980s, Japanese people earned more than Americans. Now they earn 40% less on average. Kashida's mission is to drag Japan back up. He has embarked on a sweeping modernization drive, recently greenlighting the nation's first casino, as well as a dedicated autonomous driving lane for the Shintome Expressway 
a key logistics artery. Kashida's domestic agenda rests on a nebulous income doubling plan to boost household earnings, but his big problem is how to pay for redistribution without alienating the affluent. Japan's ratio of public debt to GDP stand at 256%, over double that of the U.S., and Kishida has very little wiggle room to keep on borrowing. When he floated the idea of raising taxes on stock transfers and dividends, Japan's bourses tanked. Mr. Kishida has to be pretty careful to keep key right-wing support, says Miyako Nakabayashi, a professor at Tokyo's Waseda University and a former Japanese lawmaker. Kushida also wants to get more women and seniors into gainful employment. Japan ranked 116th among 146 countries, the lowest of developed economies, in the World Economic Forum's 2022 Gender Gap Report. But while Kushida's government has set targets to reap 30% female executives at big firms by 2030, I don't think it has clearly stated what kind of action plan it will actually take to achieve that goal, says Makiko Ono, CEO of Suntory Beverages and Food, Japan's most valuable company with a female boss. Ultimately, Japan remains over 30% less productive than the United States. Kishida has charged Japan's digital agency to cut red tape and boost efficiency. Digital Minister Taro Kono tells Time that he's discovered 9,000 government regulations that still require handling via antiquated technology, such as faxes, floppy disks, and the hanko, an iconic card stamp that is obligatory for many official documents. But Kono has only 800 officials to serve Japan's population of 125 million, complaining that his agency is desperately understaffed. It's a monumental challenge. Embracing the fourth industrial revolution is crucial for developed societies everywhere, though perhaps none more so than Japan, whose shrinking, aging population has no precedent in the world, says Kishida. This is a matter of survival. It's a different kind of existential threat that will occupy the Gene 7 in Hiroshima, where posters promoting the summit adorn billboards and vending machines across the city, with countdown clocks inside the cavernous main railway station. Denied a seat on the UN Security Council, Japan has always placed great emphasis on the economic grouping, where it is the only Asian member. Close aides to Kushida say that welcoming the G7 to his home city will be the realization of a lifelong dream. Not only is it Kushida's best chance to catapult Japan to true global leadership, Nabayashi says he also hopes may use any bounce in domestic approval as a platform to dissolve parliament and seek a fresh mandate. In January, Kushida made whistle-stop visits to member states Britain, France, Italy, Canada, and the U.S. to drum up support for his agenda. He also invited India, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and South Korean President Soon Suk-yeol 
to attend as observers. The stakes are high. Given the very sketchy situation in the international order, with Ukraine and Taiwan figuring prominently, the G7 must step up or risk becoming irrelevant, says Kingston. But not all agree with the G7's combative posture. Setsuko Thurlow remembers August 6, 1945, clearly. She was just 13 when she was recruited to help decipher intercepted Allies' communication as part of Japan's World War II efforts. At 8.15 a.m., she glimpsed a bluish-white flash through the window of the wooden building that served as the military headquarters in what is today Hiroshima's Higashi suburb. The bomb detonated as a temperature of 7,700 degrees Celsius, just over a mile away. I had the sensation of flying up and floating in the air, she says. After she crawled out from beneath the charred timber, I started seeing moving figures like people, but not really human beings, recalls Thurlow, now 91, who accepted a Nobel Peace Prize in 2017 on behalf of the international cane to abolish nuclear weapons. They looked like ghosts. The bombings of Hiroshima and three days later Nagasaki claimed some 170,000 lives. Japan's more aggressive military posture under Kishida makes Thurlow alarmed, she says. Kishida said his top priority was to work toward a world free of nuclear weapons. But right now, I realize he was deceiving us. Kishida tells Time he's committed to global nuclearization and his government will not discuss nuclear armament. And no doubt G7 attendees will have poignant tours of Hiroshima's Peace Museum and A-Bomb Dome, which was one of the few buildings left standing after the blast. Remaining today a rubble-strewn shell of broken bricks and twisted iron girders, rimmed by a neat hedge of flowering azalea. Kishida draws a straight line between Hiroshima and the stricken Ukrainian city of Bucha, which he visited in March, speaking of great anger at the atrocity in a departure from his trademark equanimity. He wants the G7 to know the true horror lurking within Vladimir Putin's repeated threats of nuclear war, which came as a huge shock to me, he says. Still, it would be disingenuous to pretend that Russia is Kashida's sole focus. His attention is also to convey that, just as Ukraine is Asia's problem, Taiwan is Europe's problem, rebutting the sentiments of French President Emmanuel Macron, who, when asked about Taiwan in April, said that Europe must not get caught up in crises that are not ours. For Kashida... Russian aggression against Ukraine is not a development that happened far away, he says. Attempts to unilaterally change the status quo by force, wherever they may happen in the world, cannot be allowed. Kishida is diplomatic when asked about China's challenge, citing the need to build on the positive momentum forged by his November summit with Xi. However, he admits China's current external posture and military trends are matters of serious concern. Others in his administration are bolder. Rather than Russia or North Korea, the major threat is coming from China, 
says Kono, who previously served as both Japan's foreign minister and defense minister. We need to be prepared for their military actions, as well as economic coercion against Taiwan or others. Washington agrees. In recent months, President Biden has committed to enhance military cooperation with Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and Australia. He will be pressuring Kishida to assist not only with defense matters, but also to prevent technology transfer to China. Meanwhile, Beijing has set about courting the Global South with a new forum for international relations, which the nation's state media has dubbed Zivilization. It's a clash of worldviews that promises to keep heating up. Kishida's mission at Hiroshima will be to keep focus on the city's charged remains and paper cranes, to let the ghosts have their say. All right, the second article today from the same uh, May 22nd to 29 issue of Time magazine is titled Racial Cargill's Radical Joy by Janelle Ross. Discovering the value of pleasure in the pursuit of a better world with the author of A Renaissance of Our Own. The moment Rachel Cargill opens her Brooklyn apartment door, I see the signs of relaxed living. There is the time to greet me slowly on a Monday morning. There is the letter board displaying not an overcrowded schedule, but the affirming words, this too is the living. There is the sunshine streaming in from a balcony where salad greens hang from a pocket plant wall. And there's the soft, brandy-colored leather couch where we sit and talk over steaming cups of dark roast coffee, served Jamaican-style with thick condensed milk. Jamaica ranks among her happiest places. Cargill, 34, is a black woman leading a modern, multi-hyphenated life improbably filled with an abundance of ease, another of his fa her favorite phrases. Her career as an influencer, speaker, and writer began about six years ago with an Instagram account. Her posts on grief, self-care, and liberation have earned her 1.6 million followers, with over 1 million more following side accounts like those for her businesses a bookstore in Akron, Ohio, an online self-paced learning platform, and a foundation bringing mental health support to black women and girls. Cargill built her brand on her commitment to racial justice. But what makes her approach, and her life, particularly remarkable, is her insistence that joy and pleasure are as essential as equity and justice in the making of a better world. Racism causes our bodies to be weathered, she says. The repair of that requires being able to sit squarely in your own values. You can find more peace when you are spending your time and energy doing the things you want to do, no matter how extraneous they may seem to anyone else. Her debut book, titled A Renaissance of Our Own, A Memoir and Manifesto and Reimagining, out on May 16th, was a collection of lessons and questions to prompt the reader's own life redesign. The book and the worldview it illuminates are open to all, Cargill tells me, 
but it was written first and foremost for black women. Because silencing, shaming, correcting, ignoring, downplaying, degrading, and overburdening, and still demanding more from black women remains the norm. Cargill grew up the youngest in an Ohio family. Her father, a man who never provided steady financial support, but showered Cargill with love, died of kidney failure when she was 11. Her mother, whom Cargill describes as industrious and creative, had been disabled by polio as a child. She was fixed on two things, religious salvation and survival. It was she who moved the family to subsidized housing in a nearly all-white affluent area, hoping to provide Cargill and her two sisters with different opportunities. As a teen, Cargill took note of the stoicism her mother cultivated. In the new book, she describes it as a response to difficult circumstances, the impracticality of falling apart. We're often in deep survival mode, we black women, she says. Softness was never offered as a tool. Cargill was a star student and with her mother, a co-parent to her nieces, nephews, and one cousin. An aunt spent time in jail, and she writes that her sisters became victims of addiction, whose lives collapsed in dysfunction and pain. Cargill was so convinced that caretaking, crisis, and welfare dependency were her future, she did not initially plan for college. At school, she plastered on a smile. At home, she contemplated jobs that would accommodate parenting, but not render her ineligible for affordable housing. She shudders to admit how little she understood then about how race and income can shape one's options. Looking back on it now, I see that I was reaching for whatever good fruit I could find to pick off of the blighted little tree I felt I'd been assigned in life. With a cousin's help, Cargill applied to the University of Toledo. But in 2009, before earning a degree, Cargill left school and followed the fellow student she had married to his Ohio hometown, then into a U.S. Air Force Guard unit. Outside her monthly service obligation, she eventually became a stay-at-home wife. She tried to convince herself the security that a religious military black man and his orderly family presented would be enough. It wasn't. After she asked for a divorce in 2012, she also untethered herself from the idea that church was the only path to goodness. These decisions began by simply imagining what else might be possible. Sometimes I sit on a step, and I rest there a while, she says. Sometimes I skip a few steps, and sometimes I go back. You can't do that when you are on this escalator of expectations from society, religion, and family. By the time Donald Trump was inaugurated in 2017, Cargill had spent a few years living in Washington, D.C. and New York. She was dating, exploring her sexuality, and embracing polyamory. She was thinking and reading about gender and feminism. She was savoring the chance to watch Scandal while eating a burrito on the couch alone. She'd bought into the ideal of the girl boss, women who seemed always in possessions of copious glitter, 
Cargill writes in a Renaissance, and to conflate business success, or aspiring to it, with gains for all women. As thousands converged on Washington and other cities for the Women's March, a photo emerged of Cargill and her friend Dana Suchow, who is white, each raising a fist in protest. People online compared the picture to the iconic 1971 image of white feminist Gloria Steinem and black childcare activist Dorothy Pittman Hughes. Then it reached an Instagram account with mostly black followers. The response was quite different. How, many commenters wondered, could Cargill find communion in that crowd of overwhelmingly white women when nearly half of white women, 47%, had voted for Trump? Her answer, she still isn't sure. She hadn't learned much in school about Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, or other black women activists, people also hardly mentioned in the feminist text she'd read as an adult. Only now was she learning white feminism had a track record of sidelining everyone else. So she educated herself, taking her evolving thoughts to social media. Her honesty about her need to learn and her obligation to bring accountability to her feminist work boosted her profile. Her following grew exponentially, also becoming four more diverse. Her social media work led to speaking engagements and helped birth the Loveland Foundation. The foundation began with an idea Cargill had in 2018 while briefly continuing college at Columbia University. There, she had access to affordable individual therapy for the first time. It helped her heal, and she wanted to improve access for others. To celebrate her birthday in 2018, she launched a GoFundMe and within months had raised over $250,000. Now an official nonprofit, Loveland offers training to therapists of color, as well as free mental health care. It provided 6,202 black women and girls with 74,424 hours of free therapy last year. Cargill hopes in the future to offer financial support to therapists and to create policy changes to boost diversity in the field. In 2021, just 19% of the nation's psychology workforce were people of color, and 5% of these were black per the American Psychological Association. The Sunday before I visited Cargill's home, she and Charlene Kemmler, the CEO of the Loveland Foundation, hosted a brunch at a downtown Manhattan restaurant. There, they shared their own experiences with healing with a table of about 20 influencer guests. Kemmler's story, her family staged an intervention because she started therapy after her father's death, set off knowing laughter and similar testimonials about family distrust for mental health care. Cargill has a way of bringing whimsy to the most serious of purposes. On this rainy Sunday, she spoke of revolution while dressed in a sequined caftan. She strives to stay her easeful self at all times. I don't want to feel continuously at the mercy of the weather, she says. She's speaking metaphorically the weather of politics, of people's perceptions. I want to be good whatever the weather is, and that takes self-knowing, she says. 
That can't be handed to you from anywhere. Not from your parents, not from your religion, not from your job. Joy lives inside you. And our last article for today is titled, A Documentary Not About Illness, but About Life, by Stephanie Zacharek. One of Michael J. Fox's greatest gifts is that he can laugh at himself. If it were up to us to choose the fates of the performers we care about, millions of people would want to wish Michael J. Fox's Parkinson's disease away. Few actors of the 1980s and 90s gave us as much pleasure. On TV's Family Ties, his characterization of teenage conservative Alex P. Keaton was so artful that even die-hard liberals could get a kick out of it. In 1985, as the charmingly incredulous Marty McFly, he traveled back in time to make a match between his own parents. And in the sharp 90s-era sitcom Spin City, he played peripatetic New York City Deputy Mayor Mike Flaherty, doing his best to avert municipal crises, despite his bumbling staff. Fox's nervous energy was a kind of radiance, an animating force that audiences warmed to. After he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 1991 at age 29, he hid his condition for as long as he could. When he finally revealed his illness to the world, it seemed cosmically unfair that such a likable performer, so gifted at physical comedy in particular, should have to suffer this way. There's no way to put a positive spin on Parkinson's. But how we handle the cards we're dealt is everything. And Davis Guggenheim's remarkable documentary titled Still, a Michael J. Fox movie, reminds us that a person stricken with a disease does not become that disease. Fox's condition continues to deteriorate as he ages. He is now 61. Though the boy he used to be is still right there in the impish planes of his face, his limitations have increased. He's frequently injured as the result of unavoidable falls. But he's still Michael J. Fox. And Guggenheim, an astute interviewer, paints a picture of where he's at today that's unsparing, but also terrifically, if also somewhat darkly, funny. When Guggenheim asks Fox where he thinks he'll be in 20 years, his brow furrows, and it takes a few seconds for the answer to travel from brain to mouth. I'll either be dead or a pickle, he says, the kind of spontaneous out-there joke you have to be Michael J. Fox to make. What's striking about the movie, still, is how celebratory it is. This isn't the story of a wonderful actor felled by an illness. It's the story of a wonderful actor, period. Beginning nearly at the beginning, with a reenactment of an incident in which toddler Michael, growing up in Canada, runs off to the local candy store on his own, and moving briskly through Fox's career, which ambled along for several years before taking off like a rocket. I was the boy prince of Hollywood, he says, recalling the multiple sports car he was able to buy once he hit it big. A vintage TV clip shows Shelley Winters asking him point-blank who he's sleeping with. 
Before marrying fellow actor Tracy Pollan in 1988, he most certainly had his pick. Guggenheim and his editor, Michael Hart, made artful use of clips from Fox's films to illustrate the events of his life. A sequence in which Fox describes a particularly grueling three months, during which he worked on family ties during the day and spent most of each night filming Back to the Future, is almost alarmingly effective. Just walking it makes you feel pooped. But the most extraordinary scenes are in the movie are the ones showing Fox with Pollen and their grown children, sitting around the kitchen and making one another laugh, sometimes not in spite of Fox's limitations, but because of them. One of his greatest gifts is that he can laugh at himself, maybe more so now than ever. At one point in the documentary, Guggenheim realizes he hasn't asked Fox if he's in pain. I'm in intense pain, Fox answers. When Guggenheim asked why he hasn't mentioned it at any point during the filming, Fox says plainly, it didn't come up. A line so funny, it hurts. And that concludes our coverage of the Time May 22nd to 29th issue of Time Magazine. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and I'm happy to share Time Magazine with you, reminding you that you've been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Material or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. <laughs>